Yesterday morning, I was um, working uh, in the Tin Pot Cafe, which is um, in North Detroit, in my house, and I was sitting there typing away, finishing off the sermon. And who should come in the door and sit next to me but Eddie Perfect and his family? Now, some of you will go, who's Eddie Perfect? Others of you know exactly who I'm talking about. He's a a Melbourne-based actor, comedian, musician, and host of Play School. Let's just remember. So I got to, with my back to them, but like them, like the kids pressing up against my back, I got to overhear the parenting style of Eddie, Mr. and Mrs. Perfect, basically. <laughs> um, and um, they, were, they were like a normal family, you know, um, the kids were sort of poking each other and annoying each other and the girls were like asking weird questions and the mum was trying to answer them. And through, through, the coffee, through, through the coffee, their coffee and my typing and drinking coffee, they got more and more irritated with each other, the kids and the mum and the dad. And, you know, Eddie's just sitting there going, hmm, you know, not gruffing. And, and Mrs. Perfect sort of poking them and getting worse. And the kids are getting worse and worse and worse to the point where they're like, we're just going to have to pack up and go. And I thought to myself, if a host of play school can't control his own kids, who can? <laughs> One of the best ways you can insult a parent is to talk, tell them that they're helicopter mum or helicopter dad. That's when you hover over your kids like non-stop and you just save them from every danger. You protect them from all the kind of um, suffering that they might incur in life and you also get over-involved in their life. So, you know, helicopter parents often follow their kids into their schoolyard and, you know, get involved too much in school. The other extreme, though, of helicopter parenting is free-range parenting. You might have seen that. So where parents basically just hands off, just let your kids wander around and, you know, fall over and doesn't matter. Um, I, I suspect um, they do it because, you know, these parents are probably non-confrontational and also probably a bit lazy. <laughs> oh, whatever, I don't know. They just let their kids walk around and break stuff. And the psychologist will tell you um, that helicopter parenting is bad because... Um, it creates kids who are, you know, have no resilience. Um, it produces what they call bonsai children. They've just been sort of protected so much that they don't grow. So um, they, they don't learn to negotiate the world for themselves. They, they develop a lack of resilience. They become quitters because, you know, when they later on, when they realise their mum and dad's not going to do the homework for them anymore, they, they can't be bothered. And free-range parenting is bad because... They say, because it's neglectful. I mean, you want to stop your kid from sticking their knife in the toaster, don't you? You know, take an interest in your life, free-range parents. Well, there's two different extremes. There's lots of ways that you could talk about parenting. And as a parent, I know it's really hard to get it right. There is a form of parenting taught, which is um, called the circle of security, which I don't have time to go into great detail right now, but it's actually really good. The basic idea is that the parent creates a secure base and a secure haven for their child. So secure base with one hand, secure haven for their child. The child is free to go on an adventure, maybe in the lounge room or in the playground, wander around and then come back to the parent. And the parent watches them, delights in them, takes an interest in them, may help them if they need it and the parent enjoys their child's little adventure. But then the child will want to return and the parent receives them back, welcomes them back into the safe haven where they're gonna be protected, comforted and delighted 
and have their feelings organised, as you have to do with children. And the basic rule of thumb in, um, uh, in the circle of security for parents is that the parents are reminded that they always have to be bigger and stronger and wiser and always kind to their children. Because the best way to screw up a child's life is to be smaller in a maturity sense and weaker in a resilient sense and unwise and unkind. And all of this thinking about parenting has led me to think of a question I've never thought about before, which is, I wonder what God's parenting style is. Because if God is our father and we are his children, how does he parent us? Some people would like God to be a helicopter father, always intervene, stop everything bad from happening, just choose their life for them. Other people would like God to be a free-range father who has no rules and just lets them have complete freedom. But as you might guess, God is neither a helicopter nor a free-range father. I actually think he's a lot closer to operating in that circle of security framework, even though the people who developed that probably weren't thinking about anything spiritual. Because God does pro provide for us a secure base and also a safe haven, and he allows us the freedom to go on an adventure, and he continues to take an interest in our lives, even when we're not realising and he's watching what we're doing. He radiates kindness. He's the source of all wisdom. He's infinitely stronger and bigger than us. He listens to our needs and he takes charge over our lives. Not only our lives, but the whole universe. We're talking about parenting because in this story from Ruth, in the first chapter of Ruth, we see God and the way he rules, almost in the background, over Naomi as, as the perfect father, the perfect loving father who, who, who allows her to go away and come back. We will see the way God has his hand over her life despite the suffering she experiences and the famine and the death she experiences on her journey away from God. If you, if you, I don't know if you know the book of Ruth, if you've ever read it before, but in the history of the, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it comes at the moment just after the time of the Judges, if you read the book of Judges. And the judge, period of Israel's history in the time of the Judges uh, was the most violent and um, corrupt period in their history, probably. Um, immoral. I mean, you get the best stories for a, for a movie by Tarantino. Like, you've got the Moabite king who stabs the guy on the toilet, you know, who gets stabbed on the toilet through his stomach. There's J.L. who hammers a tent peg through the head of, you know, um, Cicero in his sleep. There's Ammon who foolishly vowed to sacrifice his virgin daughter. There's Samson, you know, Samson, Delilah Samson. Well, Samson knocked down the temple and slaughtered 30 Philistines for their clothes and burned down a village, including all the women and children. It's really violent, you know. That's the context. The Israelites were in a mess. And as you look, if you read the book of Judges, there's a famous verse that gets repeated over and over and over again, which is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people do what is right in their own eyes. Now, if you imagine the book of Judges being a Tarantino film or a Roman Polanski would probably do a better job, um, the camera goes right in on this mess and you see all that violence and then it zooms back and then it zooms back in again to a family. And you see in this family a faithful, loving, 
group of Israelites who were living in Bethlehem, doing their thing. And all through the periods of biblical history, there's always, amongst the mess of God's people, a few people which we call the remnant, the faithful remnant, who are doing their thing with God and God has his eye on them. And from this story about a faithful remnant in the time of the judges, we will learn three principles of the Christian life that are based on our confidence in God the Father, who has the perfect parenting style, which is to have faith while suffering, to have friends while suffering, and to have fulfilment after suffering. So let's have a thing about having faith while suffering. The story begins with the Hebrew woman Naomi and her husband Elimelech, who lived in Bethlehem, and they'd been a drought. And so they left home to the town of Moab. Leaving their people behind was a significant decision. You don't just walk away from your tribe. They took this risk because they were desperate and they were hungry. So see, in Moab, they'd be living amongst foreign people, amongst foreign gods, in a different language, a different culture. But there was food. This was their adventure, their exploring of the world. They were taking a risk. They were struggling in Bethlehem. They needed to go somewhere. And after living in Moab, the story moves so quickly in the first few verses of Ruth 1. They, they settle and life seems to go well. And uh, Naomi and Elimelech's sons find wives, local wives. So they married into the culture. And then great suffering occurs. On their time away, great suffering occurs. Why? Nobody knows. It just happens. All the men in Naomi's life die. Her husband and her two sons. She's left with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. If you think of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son for a moment, he's leaving his home and he's the personal love of his father and going away and experiencing suffering. Jesus is using this as a, an image or an illustration of the spiritual journey away from God and the spiritual suffering that results. In the case of Naomi, her physical distance from the Israelites in Judah and her suffering also paralleled her spiritual distance from God. She was living in a foreign land under foreign gods in a time when the Israelites didn't mind changing and adapting their faith to fit in to other people. And the connection I'm seeing here between geographical distance and spiritual distance isn't a, a big jump in the Bible. In fact, it's a, it's a theme all the way through. Think about it. the opening chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve are perfectly close to God in the garden. They sin and they are banished geographically from paradise. Jonah, when he tries to run away from God, he literally runs away and hops in a boat and goes out in the ocean. And that distance is for him also reflecting his spiritual distance from God. The Israelites wandering through the desert towards the promised land when they're obedient, they're walking towards, geographically towards the promised land. When they're disobedient, they're geographically walking away. Uh, think of uh, what happens to Israel in the period of rebellion when they're sinning against God constantly God punishes them by sending them away physically, geographically into exile into Babylon 
Think of all the characters in the Gospels who want to be close physically to the Son of God, Jesus. Think of Zechariah, he climbs up the tree and he wants to get in close above the crowds because he's a short guy and he can't get, get through. Think of the bleeding woman who literally touches Jesus' cloak. Think of Nicodemus who, who nicks off in the dark and, and, uh, and, and to get close to Jesus so that nobody can see he's, he's there. Think of the woman who, who rummaged through the people in the house to, get, to pour the oil on Jesus' feet. Often the Bible uses this story device that physical distance is reflecting uh, also a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality about the spiritual distance from God. And this is what's happening with Naomi. In Moab, she's far from God. And now she's actually encountered tragic suffering. I'm not suggesting the suffering is related to that, but that's just what's happening, happened. And those of you who have lost family members will know the gut-wrenching nature of what, what that is like. But imagine losing three all at once. Your husband and your two sons. It would have been too much for Naomi. And so often we're used to acknowledging God's hand in our blessing, but what about God's hand in our suffering? Naomi did think that her suffering was because God brought it on her. Look at what she says when Ruth and Orpah tell her that they want to return with her to Bethlehem in verse 13. No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. But had the hand of the Lord turned against Naomi? You know, it, we should pause and think about why suffering occurs. The Bible teaches a bunch of basic principles. I'm going to give you seven of them quickly. Just to get our head around this, there's lots more. Basically, um, the Bible teaches us that all suffering is, is a, as a general result of human sin. Generally speaking, it's because of the curse placed on the universe by God, Genesis chapter 3. Generally speaking, because of the depravity of human sin. When we see suffering, we have to think of human sin and feel that tension. But secondly, sometimes we experience suffering as a direct result of our sin. So if we break the law, we go to jail, and the suffering in, in jail that we experience is a direct result of our sin. Or if you're married, you have an affair, your spouse catches you and leaves you, that divorce is painful and is a direct result of your sin. Thirdly, though, most suffering that we experience isn't a one-to-one -one direct um, result of our sin. If you get struck down with an illness, you're not to think... God must be punishing me for one particular sin or another. And that's how the Jews thought in the Old Testament. But it's not a New Testament idea. In John 9, Jesus is walking along and sees a blind man and the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? I mean, why is, he, why is he blind, this blind guy? Is it because he sinned or was it his parents who sinned? Remember, Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Fourthly, and this brings us to another part of the doctrine of suffering, which is that um, God is in control of the world. He knows everything. He sees the big picture in a way that we don't. I mean, the whole book of Job is talking about this. We only see a very small slither of the picture. Um, God has his reasons and we can not begin to understand them for why things are the way they are in the world. Fifthly, God uses suffering to refine our faith. It can be for our good. 
You know, a famous saying that somebody once said, if you dive into the sea of hardship, you will bring up rare pearls. Six, God will use suffering for good in general. Famously, Romans 8, verse 28 says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And seventh, lastly, God's goal for history is to end all suffering and create a new heavens and the earth. Jesus' resurrection is the first evidence of this ending of suffering. And the whole universe is to follow eventually. Here's the doctrine of suffering, quickly rushed through in seven points. It's important just to clarify this. Sometimes we've got, we've got funny ideas about God and suffering in our lives. For Naomi, her pain is terrible. God had not abandoned her. In fact, he had a plan to use her suffering for good. And if you're suffering right now, I can understand why you might be thinking like Naomi. God has his hand against me. But a really mature response for the Christian disciple who is suffering is to find a cry out to God and weep tears and to be physically distraught. There's nothing wrong with that. That's important for the human soul to lament. But also to ask God, why is this happening? Help me to grow through, through this. Help me to understand your purposes. And for you to continue in your faith while you're suffering. We're to learn from Naomi's situation. If you're suffering, continue to have faith in God, your Father. His parenting is perfect. He lets you go for an explore while he's caring for you. And he will welcome you back into his safe haven of his arms. Secondly, though, we're to have friends while we're suffering. So in verse 6, we read that Naomi does intend to return to Bethlehem and be with her people in the land God had given the Israelites. Naomi had heard about God blessing the people back home. So she wants to return. There's no place for her in Moab anymore. And Moab to Bethlehem was a significant journey. They had to go around um, the Dead Sea and um, it would have taken about a week. And dangerous on her own. And so while travelling back with her two daughters-in-law, which was a bit strange, and I'll explain why I was thinking, she, she decides to set, tell them to go home. There's no, you don't need to come back with me to, to Bethlehem. Um, you're free to go. You know, your husbands have died. Go back home to your own mothers. Of course, they protested their mother-in-law's suggestion. They felt a strong sense of loyalty and connection to her. Perhaps they felt empathy for her because of the suffering and they were together bonded by that. But they had their whole life ahead of them. And Naomi made a Jewish joke about this. You see it in verse 11. She's like, what, what do you, you think I'm going to do? Get pregnant and have two more sons and then you wait around and marry them. Don't be ridiculous. So Orpah did go back to Moab to live, but Ruth refused and clung on to Naomi and she insisted on staying with her. And Ruth is breaking the cultural norms here by staying with her. Usually the death of a husband does free you to go back home to your own mother and father. But Ruth is saying, I belong to you, mother-in-law, more than my own mother. The commitment she makes here to her mother-in-law is, a, is a, like a friendship, I guess, of the highest order. It sounds like a wedded friendship, a covenantal friendship. Look at verse 16. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. 
And she even suggests that they'll share a tomb together. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me. And more as well, if even death parts me from you. No wonder that this gets read out at weddings. Naomi and Ruth's friendship has an elevated status. It's not just any old connection anymore. There's a high covenantal commitment here. And God uses this significant friendship to do good. Ruth, just a you know, spoiler alert, Ruth eventually finds a new husband in Bethlehem who's from the tribe of Judah. They have a son called Obed who becomes the grand, uh, grandfather of King David. So God has got his plans here and he's doing amazing things. And this goes to show how elevated the significance of the friendship is. Friendship born out of suffering is the means by which God establishes the Davidic line. And who's born in the Davidic line? Jesus himself. See how God values the idea of covenantal spiritual friendships. We have Naomi and Ruth. We have David and Jonathan whose souls are knitted together and who made uh, congenital promises to each other in 1 Samuel 18. Jesus had a special loving friendship uh, with Lazarus. He goes to the tomb and weeps over it. And it also talks about how um, with the apostles, you know, there was his friends, the apostles, but there was one extra special friend, John, who he loved. These relationships are not sexual. We're not said that way. Some people have tried to suggest that. They're, they're special and committed and intimate. And I want to say, don't be afraid to pursue special, close, covenantal relationships that are friends, that are Christians. A lie of middle-class culture, especially in the church, is that the only intimate relationships that you can have are sexual ones. If you are a single person, if you're unmarried, God doesn't want you to be alone. If marriage isn't a possibility for you right now, loneliness isn't the only alternative. Open yourself up to close, spiritual, mutually encouraging friendships. Share your lives with other Christians and brothers and sisters in a way that's not just like any old friendship, but an elevated form of friendship. The community groups we have here will give you a loose bunch of friends. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a high level of commitment. If you want to go further, you need to open up and become vulnerable with people. And it takes time. You could even, um, if you're a single person, consider buying a house with another single person or uh, several other single people. Um, you could go on holidays and, and, and share your life together like that. It's risky, and like all healthy relationships, it will require sacrifice and living for the other people in a other person-centred way. But it will be rich and rewarding. This also applies to married people. Your husband or your wife cannot meet all your friendship needs, believe it or not. Um, people say, oh, my wife or my husband's best friend. Great. But they can't meet all your needs. So it's perfectly okay for you to form covenantal spiritual friendships with other people of the same gender. I think if, if they're of the opposite gender and you're married, it's probably too dangerous and risky. I wouldn't do that. Perhaps you could with another couple. But your husband or wife, can't meet all your needs. I know for me, I have a few blokes in this congregation who I've known for a really long time, over a decade, some two or three decades or four. And, um, and we have this kind of spiritual covenantal friendship that we can be close to each other, committed to each other, 
in an elevated friendship kind of way, travel together through the hard times and the good times. And it's a mutually encouraging relationship. It's not just about going to the pub, although that's part of it. It's about actually being there for each other. And this is the perfect way to bust the idol of individualism, isn't it? God wants us to see these covenantal friendships forming in the church, and he will use them. And what we see in Naomi and Ruth is that kind of spiritual friendship. They help, spiritual friendships help you to survive the struggles and suffering in life. Spiritual friendships encourage obedience to God as you spur each other on in faith. And close spiritual friends cry with you, laugh with you, and carry you when you're falling. So have faith while you're suffering, and have friends while you're suffering, and finally, have fulfilment after you're suffering. The thing about suffering is the Christian should have the long view, and we, dis- we will discover spiritual fulfilment as we continue on in our faith. And Ruth made the right decision to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem because of all the things that unfold, God's blessing that unfolds after that. She's continuing her new life as a Hebrew person. No doubt she would have heard the stories of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob and Moses, and now she's embracing this new religion. She's come to believe in the God of Israel. And going to Bethlehem is going to the place of God's blessing. It's returning home to the Father's safe haven, his, his hands. It's not a stupid decision at all. You too can return to God, and if you want to do that, then do it. But know this, the Christian gospel isn't really about you coming back but it's about Jesus going out to get you. Jesus is the good shepherd who when one sheep goes away from the flock, he goes out and gets you. It's a both-and thing, really. From your perspective, it feels like you're coming home like the prodigal son coming home. But from God's perspective, he's sending Jesus out to get you and bring you back. And they found fulfilment when they went back. Everyone was excited to see them. But for Naomi, while returning was the right thing to do, it didn't mean that it was easy She had many reasons for her absence. She hadn't had the amazing life everyone had imagined. In fact, she says in verse 20, Call me no longer, Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me, Naomi, when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She felt the pain from the past, but what we'll see in the rest of uh, the remaining chapters of Ruth in the next three weeks that um, her perception of herself wasn't quite right. In fact, what God was doing in her life was going to be so significant through her and then through Ruth would be the descendants of King David and Jesus himself. And now she's home in the place of God's blessing and she brought her Moabites daughter-in-law Ruth who are going to join with the disciple of the people of God. So this is a really great day. So take your cue from Naomi and Ruth and come back to God. If you've been away from, for a long time from God, come back in faith. If you've been suffering for a while, remember to continue in faith and surround yourself with Christian friends. Don't suffer on your own. And fulfilment is on the horizon. Remember where God's blessing is. Be humble. It takes humility to do it, to give up your struggle. God is a God of grace and he accepts you. He is the perfect parenting style. Be where you can have the support of loving spiritual friends. Leave your place of famine and return home. He's waiting for you with his arms open. Let's pray.
Lord God, thank you for Naomi and her decision to come home with Ruth. Thank you for Ruth and her commitment, her covenant of friendship with her mother-in-law that went on to result in the establishment of the line of King David. We thank you that you are in control of the world and that you are our perfect Father who loves us. We pray for anyone here this morning who has realised that they're far from you spiritually and emotionally, even potentially physically, um, that they um, can come back and that you can reach out with your hands and bring them back to you. Amen.